I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 27 as we continue our studies through the book of Exodus. We'll be looking at the first 19 verses of this chapter together this evening. But before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Lord, we bow in humility before You and acknowledge that we desire to grow even in greater humility before Your Word of truth. Would You give us eyes to see and ears to hear? We long for our hearts to be brought in greater submission to that loving authority that You have given to us in the pages of Scripture. May we see Christ more clearly. May we see our need for Him more deeply, and may we see the charge that is before us as Your redeemed children to walk in greater adoration, faithfulness, thanksgiving unto You. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings, so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. You shall make the cord of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its twenty pillars and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars twenty and their bases twenty of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver." And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with there three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hanging shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple scarlet yarns, fine twine linen, embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars, and with them four bases. And the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver, and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, the height five cubits, with hangings of fine twine linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Undoubtedly, you've heard people say things like, I don't believe in a God of wrath. I don't believe in a God of judgment, vengeance, a day of judgment certainly to come. My God is a God of peace and love. Such a distorted view of the nature of God is nothing new. 
from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent planted those seeds of distrust and disinformation about the character of God. And ever since then, mankind has presumed that they can make God into whatever image they want Him to be. And typically, the God of wrath, the God of justice, and a day of judgment to come at the end of the age are among the first things that are discarded. But of course, when we hold to the wrath and judgment of God, as it's taught to us clearly in the pages of Scripture, it's worth asking why. Why would God judge? Why would He punish mankind? The short answer, of course, is because God is holy and we are not. He is righteous. We have rebelled against Him, and we have harbored hatred in our hearts toward His loving authority and toward His benevolent rule. And so, the judgments or justice of God is a necessary manifestation of His holiness. To say that you do not believe in a God of wrath or judgment is to say that you do not believe in a holy God, which is to believe in no God at all. Yes, God is a God who is holy and just. He is also a God full of mercy and long-suffering. Later in Exodus, in chapter 34, the Lord makes this wonderful declaration to Moses regarding Himself that He is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so simply, we would be wise to listen to the Word of God and to allow God Himself to tell us who He is rather than imposing some false view of His nature upon Him. We would be wise to listen to Him to determine how we might find forgiveness for our transgressions and sins so that we are not numbered among the guilty on that final day. And the bronze altar actually helps us a great deal to understand more of the nature of the living God. It helps us to understand who He is. It helps us to understand our condition before Him and how we might come into His presence. And so, how are we to understand this altar? Well, this is our first point this evening, simply the altar or the bronze altar. But this is not the first time in redemptive history that we have come across altars. Noah constructed an altar after the flood. Abram made altars as he traveled through the promised land of Canaan, as did Jacob and even Moses prior to this. And of course, the pagan nations around the Israelites constructed altars of sacrifice for their own purposes, though the altars of the Lord are to be different, distinguishing them from those pagan rites. You might remember at the end of Exodus chapter 20, there was instruction given to the Israelites that altars were not to be spectacular, they were not to be ornate to draw attention to themselves, but to be made very simply out of compacted earth and unhewn stones. Well, all that to say is that the Israelites would have had some working knowledge of altars prior to this, though from their time that they will spend here at Sinai, they will learn much, much more about the role of sacrifices and the necessity of sacrifice. Now, these instructions from the Lord note first the large size of the altar. Of all the pieces of furniture that we've talked about so far, this is by far the largest of them measuring a little over seven and a half feet or so in width, the same in length, square in shape, and about four feet or so in height, 
with horn-like projections on each corner of the altar. Now, some say that these horns upon the altar are nothing more than ornamental in nature. Others say that horns represent strength in the ancient Near East, and so this is a sign of the Lord's strength, namely the one who is the strength of our salvation. You might be reading through an Old Testament narrative in which someone flees to the altar and lays hold of those horns upon the altar into the temple or tabernacle, rather, and grasps onto them for refuge. But it seems like the most obvious reason for the horns is to tie down the sacrifice upon the altar. Listen to what we read in Psalm 118, verse 27. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. This is a bit of a spoiler, but you might be thinking ahead already about how Jesus fulfills this. For the cross itself upon which the Lord Jesus died was the final altar of redemptive history upon which He was willingly bound, taking the wrath of God upon Himself. We learn further that this altar, as the other pieces of furniture, was to be made of acacia wood underneath, but this time overlaid with bronze, both for its durability of heat resistance But as we talked about before, those elements that we've seen as we move from the interior of the most holy place outward go from more to less valuable, as it were, from gold to silver and now to bronze. In addition, we read in verse 3 about the utensils that would be used for the altar, shovels and pots to collect drippings from the fat of the sacrificial animal, other pots to remove the ashes that would accumulate under the altar. We read later in Scripture about designated places where this ash is to be taken outside of the covenant community to a designated location. There were bowls for collecting blood for its manipulation. There were forks for turning the meat over upon the flame. In some cases, with certain sacrifices, the priests were permitted to eat a portion of that sacrifice. There were fire pans for scooping up live coals when the tabernacle would be transported from place to place so that the fire could be started up again in a new location. Coals actually remained hot when you moved them from one location to another, as I learned the hard way in my own life. You can ask my wife about that. Halfway up the altar was a grate, also made of bronze, held by rings in each of the four corners. This grating was like a large grill holding the sacrifice above the flames. The holes would allow the fat to drip through to the flames below or to be in those collected pots. Like everything else, the altar was to be portable, and so we read about these four rings on each side in which wood overlaid with bronze could be inserted so that it might be carried for transport. And so think about these three different areas or realms that we've been talking about through these different texts of the tabernacle structure. Of course, only the appointed Levitical priests are permitted to enter into that tent of meeting and minister in the holy place. Among them, only the high priest is permitted to enter that holy place but once per year. But the courtyard where the altar is kept is accessible to all of the children of Israel. And so imagine that your particular family is assigned to the outer edge of the encampment, 
Remember, the tabernacle would be at the very center of the camp of Israel with three tribes on either side. So, in this scenario, you and your family are on the very outer edge, and on one particular morning, you bring your sacrifice to the Lord, a sheep or a goat or a bird. As you maneuver through the hundreds of hundreds of tents like a maze, you would be able to keep your gaze fixed upon the smoke rising from the altar that would begin with the early morning sacrifice, carry on throughout the day, and finish with the evening sacrifice, flames that would never be extinguished. And as you got closer to the tabernacle, you would begin to smell the aroma of the sacrificial animal upon the altar. And as the courtyard came into view, roughly eight feet high linen curtains all around the perimeter on the north and south, about 150 feet in length, on the east and the west, 75 feet in length. And in the front, remember this is the side that faces east, there would be embroidered curtains serving as a door to the courtyard to enter inside. And those embroidered curtains mirror the embroidered curtains that would be upon the door to the tent of meeting. And as the curtain is drawn back and you enter the courtyard with your animal for sacrifice, you would see the priests busy with varying tasks some adding wood to the flame to keep the fire stoked, others directing the worshiper to perhaps get in line, others preparing the sacrifice, manipulating the animal, collecting blood, and others hoisting the animal upon the altar. Perhaps the bleeding of sheep and goats as they sense the danger of what's about to happen to them. It's a much different, we might say, even graphic view from inside than it would be from the outside. Imagine going to your favorite barbecue restaurant. As you get out of your car in the parking lot, you begin to smell the aroma of the wood-smoked meat, and your mouth waters as you move towards the counter to place your order. But to your horror, right behind the counter is an on-site butcher preparing fresh animals for your consumption, appetite immediately ruined. It's one thing to be a worshiper, bringing the sacrifice, seeing the smoke, smelling the enticing aroma from the outside of the courtyard. But things radically change when he moves past that curtain to come inside of the courtyard. So, what does all of this teach? What would it have taught you then, and what does it continue to teach God's people today? Let's think about some important theological truths that we learn from the altar. This is our second main point this evening, various lessons from the altar, lessons from the bronze altar. Now, there are too many lessons for us to cover in one sitting that would really take us all the way through the book of Leviticus for a more in-depth study, but there are a few important lessons for us to touch on as we think about the severity of our sin as we think about the nature of God. First, this is a costly sacrifice. Perhaps the worshiper is bringing an animal that he has raised, that he has nurtured, that has been among his prized possessions of his flock, perhaps one that was dear to him and his family. If it was not raised on his own, then it would be something that would need to be purchased. If he was poor, he could purchase a bird. But either way, an animal or a bird, it would be costly to him and to his family. 
And so he needed to see the seriousness of this matter, that sin is not to be trifled with, nor is the God who is holy, that he demands justice. And of course, this is not as though you're just loaning this animal out. It's not as though your bird is being given over to hatch some eggs and return to you, or a sheep sheared and given back, or a goat milked for a season and returned. But there is death. There is shed blood. There is forfeiture of life. This is a sacrifice given to God, which points to another lesson, which is substitutionary atonement. The Israelite would learn about substitutionary atonement as that animal was handed over on his behalf to the priest. We read in Leviticus chapter 1 that as he brings that animal to the entrance of the tent of meeting, he shall lay his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him or on account of him on his behalf. And so, as the worshiper is struck with the severity of his sin, as he learns of the holiness of God and the fact that death is the necessary judgment for sin, he is also filled with humility that the Lord would provide a way for his life to be spared. And the book of Leviticus goes into great detail on the various types of sacrifices to be offered to the Lord. And each of those sacrifices teaches us something further about the nature of God and the problem that our sin creates. And we could take all of those sacrifices and we really could put them into three categories. Sacrifices of atonement, sacrifices that are gifts to the Lord, and fellowship offerings. Let's think about each of those briefly. You see, breaking God's law brings enmity, brings separation between the worshiper and God. And so, the atoning function of the sacrifice brings restoration, reconciliation between the sinner and the Lord. Some sacrifices fit in that category of gift as a way to return a portion of what the Lord has given to us, acknowledging that everything that we have is from Him, and out of His bountiful provision, a portion is returned to Him. In fellowship sacrifices, part of the sacrifice was reserved either for the priest to consume or the worshiper himself to partake of as a sign that he is in restored fellowship with God. But the order of these sacrifices is extremely important because there cannot be fellowship until atonement is made. There cannot be gifts given unless sin is pardoned. A.W. Pink writes, there it stood, ever smoking, ever blood-stained, ever open to any guilty Hebrew that might wish to approach it. The sinner, having forfeited his life by sin, another life, an innocent life, must be given in his stead. And so, substitutionary atonement would be a vital lesson to learn. And now, when he lays his hands upon that substitutionary sacrifice, this is not a mere Right. This is not mere external ritual alone, but there is to be acknowledgement of sin, something that flows from the heart of the worshiper. And this is the third lesson that we learn from the altar, which is confession of sin. Again, this act of laying his hands, so important for us to understand this, 
This laying his hands upon the animal is not a bare ritual, but is meant to be a reflection of the heart, a heart of confession, a heart of contrition and of repentance. Leviticus 16.21 is clear. The context here is the Day of Atonement in which Aaron the high priest is told that he shall lay his hands upon the scapegoat and confess the iniquities, transgressions, and sins of the people of Israel. And so there's a sense in which sacrifice by itself is not enough. There must be confession. There must be heartfelt prayer to the Lord acknowledging one's guilt. We could say that this confession is an agreement with the Lord that this is what should happen to me. My blood should be shed. My life should be forfeit. I am deserving of the wrath of God. This is why we say frequently from the pulpit that it is not enough to believe in the fact that Jesus died for sins upon the cross. There must be confession of one's sin, agreement with God that that should have been me, that I should be the one who dies upon the altar of God's judgment. I am the one who should be bound and held there under His just wrath. And just as hands would be placed upon that substitutionary sacrifice with those hands of faith, I receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. Our our shorter catechism, question and answer 87, we actually reviewed 88 and 89 this week. So last week, you might recall, we looked at 87 on repentance, which is a wonderful summary of what our confession of sin ought to look like. In answering the question, what is repentance unto life? The catechism reads, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of that sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. And so this is the lesson you see being taught to the children of Israel. And this is the lesson that is still being taught to us today. As you look to the law of the Lord, you see your sin more starkly. And yet it is the mercy of God in the provision of a way of atonement that stirs your heart in grief and hatred toward that sin. And as you confess your sins to the Lord with that heartfelt brokenness, you long to repent of them. You long to turn from it. You want to renounce your own will, and you want to live fully for the Lord, your God, your Redeemer. And so, confession ought to be a regular part of our own prayers to the Lord. There's another important lesson from the altar, and that would be assurance or satisfaction. And so, as that sacrifice was offered upon the altar, we find this comforting refrain in Leviticus chapter 1, that as the smoke ascends, it offers a pleasing aroma to the Lord. In other words, the worshiper is accepted by the Lord because of the death of another. This is the doctrine of propitiation that is being taught, that the wrath of God is appeased through the death of another. 
we read this wonderful summary of the gospel in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. We are justified, declared righteous by grace, grace given as a gift through the redemption of Christ Jesus our Lord, whom God put forward as that propitiation, that appeasement of His wrath by His shed blood, all received by faith alone. And so that greatest problem for the sinner, the wrath of God against him, God's justice is satisfied through the obedience and death of our Savior. Every Sunday morning after our confession of sin, we hear some comfort of assurance of pardon throughout the pages of Scripture, comfort from God Himself who tells us that those who trust in Christ alone find this cleansing and pardon of guilt. And that comfort of pardon actually ought to draw us again and again to the Lord. It's that which compels us to come to Him. As we sing, who is a pardoning God like Thee? Who has grace so rich and so free? And certainly when we come in confession of sin, we come in contrition, we come in brokenness, we come even appropriately in shame for our sin against our Heavenly Father, but we come with confidence, knowing that even the most grievous sin committed against Him can find pardon in the work of Jesus. This is why the psalmist has such a longing to come into the courts, these courts you see of the Lord. Psalm 84, verse 2 and 10, my soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell with the tents of the wicked. Psalm 100, verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts come with praise. What a blessing. What a blessing it is for us as God's people when we gather for worship to sing praises to His name, to hear promises from His Word, to be drawn with those words of comfort, of pardon, and to be shaped by that truth. Another lesson that we learn from the altar is repetition. Now, here we're struck with a bit of a paradox. How can there be satisfaction and yet repetition? How can the Lord be pleased with the aroma of that substitute, and yet there is another, and another, and another? Well, this repetition teaches us that something, of course, is missing. Something is still needed to meet God's demands of justice and His requirements of holiness. And there's not only the repetitive and even gruesome nature of the animal sacrifices as we read great detail about how those animals were to be prepared, but the flame of the altar is never extinguished. As the coals are moved from place to place, the fire is rekindled. One pastor remarks, it's as though this fire has an appetite that cannot be satisfied. 
Our God is an all-consuming fire. He is righteous, holy, and without sin. And it is sin that must be punished. And so here in a very graphic, visual way, the Lord is teaching something extremely important to His people then and, of course, to us again today. And that is that every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God, both in this life and in the life to come. For we are guilty not only of sin in our first parents, Adam and Eve, but we add to that daily in thought, word, and deed, increasing that debt to Him. And we can only imagine how many sacrifices were made over the many, many years And in a sense, we are meant to be overwhelmed by the sheer volume of sacrifice. I like how Vern Poitras puts it. Are you bored by the repetitious descriptions in Leviticus 1 through 9 of how each animal is sacrificed? In a sense, we are meant to be bored. We are meant to be overwhelmed. It goes on and on. The process never suffices. Animals could never be an adequate substitute for human beings made in the image of God. The very inadequacy of these sacrifices confirms the inadequacy associated with the tabernacle structure. They are only copies of the heavenly realities. Their inadequacies have only one remedy. God must provide the ultimate sacrifice. The people could not offer enough animals to deal once and for all with their sin. Hebrews 10.4 is clear. It is impossible for the blood and bull of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so, the way that we reconcile these two lessons of repetition and satisfaction is found, of course, in the book of Hebrews. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9 part of our call to worship this evening. And Hebrews 9, a text that we have referred to a number of times in our studies through this portion of the book of Exodus. And I'll read just a few verses, beginning here in verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not His own. For then He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Again, it was Jesus who was bound to that final altar of the cross. And the fire of God's judgment is satisfied with the work of our beloved Savior. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus has paid those wages, and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, A.W. Pink writes, if the veil told of separation because of sin, the altar says death has consequences of sin 
but the altar also speaks of sin remitted. And now that sin is remitted, well, the benefits of salvation are ours. Justification, adoption, sanctification, assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, perseverance unto the end, and glorification upon that final day. Well, no more sacrifice for sin is needed. The call for the believer in Christ is to offer himself as a living sacrifice to the Lord God as an act of our spiritual worship. So may the Lord be pleased to stir within each of our hearts a greater purpose of, a greater endeavor toward a new obedience, all for the glory and honor of His name.